Good morning, church. How are we doing today? Right on. You must have got some sleep, so that's good. First service, man, they were like, hey, good to see you. So, hey, it's good to be with you. I'm Nate Krizik. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and uh, I'm just glad to be with you. It's good to be here. Uh, if this is your first time in New Life, we want to give it up for you. We are so glad you're here. Come on. Welcome them. Yes, we are honored that you chose to worship with us today. Uh, if this is your first time to New Life, you need to know that you are sitting in one of our services. Or we have actually have four services here at New Life, and we're one church in multiple locations. And so, if, uh, so we have the main campus that you're in today. We also have the venue, so we want to welcome the venue today. We are so glad that you're here with us. And then also we have all of those who worship out in North Platte. Um, with us. So if you're ever out and about on a weekend out in North Platte, stop by on a Sunday, see Pastor Dave and Tiffany and our North Platte Church family. They're awesome. They're growing and we're just excited to have them. We're all better together. Amen. 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 So we are in our current teaching series called I Am Second. How many people are just loving I Am Second? Me too. It is awesome. Just great stories of people's lives that have been transformed. They're being changed. And uh, God is still at work today. And uh, it's exciting to hear those awesome stories. And so we're going to continue with that theme today. Uh, I am second. Learning to live as second and God is first. And like my lovely wife said, you know, we are focusing on trusting God with our best. Have you ever had to give your best away? Maybe you were, uh, maybe you have kids and you remember that first child, mom and dad, and you're like, maternity leaves over and mom has to go back to work and she's freaking out going, oh, I can't leave my kid. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They're like, uh, and the husband's going, it's okay. We'll be fine. We'll survive. But you know, you have to take your kid and drop them off to the, to the daycare for the very first time. And it's like, it's heart wrenching. Like, Oh, can I do this? And so then you like drop them off and then you circle the block like 14 times, mom. You know what I'm saying? Okay, maybe not. But I mean, that's probably how I would be. So, or maybe, you know, when you're a little kid, you remember you had your, your favorite little toy? Maybe that little dump truck, that Tonka, that Tonka dump truck. And you were like, nobody wanted, you know, like you're hanging out with your friends and everybody want to play with it. And you're like, no, I'm not handing that. That's my best. Like, I'm not going to let you play with that toy. Maybe you've had those. Or maybe, you know, when you go to, when you go to McDonald's, I know how many people like to eat at McDonald's. Don't raise your hand. Good. Oh, okay. Thank you. I appreciate a few of you. But when you go to McDonald's and you pull up and there's a 16 year old standing out there with valet parking and you're like, what? McDonald's? Really? I know it doesn't happen, but what if it did? You know, you show up and they're like valet parking and you're like, dude, do I want to trust my best, my vehicle with some 16-year-old punk kid? Because when I get done with my chicken nuggets, am I going to come out and find that my car has been destroyed? Hey, it could happen. You never know. Or, you know, maybe as you're older and you have a 401k and you have to like, that's your best, like that's your retirement and you have a financial advisor and you're going, man, can I trust my best with you? Like, this is everything that I've saved to own. Like, this is all that I got. Like, when I retire, this is what I want to have left. Can I really trust you? Or maybe today, you know, you have, you need a major surgery done. And you find yourself in front of a surgeon and looking through a list of surgeons going, man, can I trust this, my body, my best to this person? You know, sometimes it can be very difficult for us to trust people. Why? Why? Because we're going, man, are they going to value? Are they going to care about my best, the way that I care and value my best. Amen? You know what I'm saying? Are you tracking with me today? Vinny, are you tracking with me? Thank you. Okay, very good. And, and so it's hard for us, it's difficult for us to trust people with our best because, man, are they going to value? Are they going to care about it? Are they going to give their life? Are they going to lay down their life? Are they going to feed my kid? Are they going to, when my kid's crying, are they going to hold my kid? 
Are they going to take care of my 401k the way that they would take care of their own 401k? Or are they just going to take a risk and it could be gone? And so there's a struggle there. And a lot of times the struggle is real because we try to hold on to things. We think we're the owners of our stuff, right? You've worked hard for your car, so you want to take care of it. You've worked hard for your children. You want, to, you want the, what's best for them. And so you want to hold on to them and you, you, you just clench your fist. Your 401k, whatever it is, you hold on to it. And so it can be very difficult for us to, to trust people, yet alone if we think we own our stuff, it can be very difficult for us to even trust God with our stuff. Very difficult. Because God, can I trust you with what I got? This is my best. And so today I want to encourage you to trust God with your best, but not to hold on to things so firmly like it's yours. You don't possess it. God does. And so that's where we're going to go today. And so to kind of stay fit to where we're going with our I Am Second series, um, we're going to have a monologue today. I'm not going to read you all of Second Kings chapter 4, but you're going to hear it for yourself from one of our actors. So let's watch this video. Praying to God, asking for anything he wanted to do with my life was just the beginning for me. So much of my life had been spent feeling numb and empty. For so long, I had lived with fear, disappointment, and shame. But the prophet Elisha, well, through his friendship, I learned what it meant to wait on the Lord to deliver his promises. I learned what it meant to turn to God when I was broken and hopeless. Let me tell you my story. My name is Ulehi, from the town of Shaoman. Here in this city, I have a beautiful home, servants, vineyards, wheat fields. I married into a position of power and wealth, and I got the privilege of meeting with Elisha, the prophet. Whenever he stopped into my city, I insisted he stay with us. I knew by his teachings, his presence, his attitude, that he was a man of God. I'm certain, I said one day to my husband, that this man who stops by with us all the time is a holy man of God. Why don't we add on a small room upstairs and furnish it with a bed and desk, a chair and a lamp, so that when he comes by, he can stay with us? And so it happened that the next time Elisha came by, he went to the room and lay down for a nap. Then he sent his servant Gehazi to me, requesting my presence, so I went to him. Through Gehazi, Elijah said to me, You've been so very gracious in taking care of us. What can we do for you? Do you have a request we can bring to the king or to the commander of the army? I told him, Nothing. I'm secure. I'm comfortable with my life. After all, what more could a woman want? My marriage was a good arrangement. My husband was a good businessman. I had all the freedom, dresses, and friends. I could have ever hoped for. I didn't dare hope for anything else. But the shame of not being able to conceive, to have my own child, to take away the disgrace of being barren, I could have asked for that. But why? What was the point? Secretly, I didn't want to be let down. So I left Elisha and his servant. Later, I realized that they still wanted to do something for me when Elisha conferred with Gehazi. There has to be something we can do for her. But what? So Gehazi pointed out my barrenness. Well, she has no son, and her husband is an old man. Then they called me back in. I had barely set foot into the doorway of his upper room when he proclaimed, This time next year, 
you are going to be nursing an infant son. I had prayed for this. I had prayed that I would do anything for God if he would just grant me this. But I had been praying for years. So many empty, lonely years. So I said to him, Oh, my master, oh, holy man, don't play games with me. Don't tease me with such fantasies. But what he said was true. I conceived. As the months passed, my belly grew, as did my hopes of having a healthy son like he promised. A year later, my son was born, and I named him Joshua because God was so generous. Day by day, he grew. Year by year, as I raised my son, my faith in the Lord grew. I wanted to know God more and more, and for my faith to be made stronger, for my faith to be without borders. And the more I prayed, the more I saw God come alive around us. If someone had told me my faith would have been made stronger through surrendering everything and anything to God, I would have written it off as cliché until I was given my son. One day he went to visit with his father who was working in the fields with the harvest hands. But something happened. When he reached his father, he complained about a pain in his head. My husband thought it was just a small ailment and sent him with a servant to me. There was nothing I could do. I could feel moment by moment his life slipping away from me. This child that I dared not even whisper a prayer for was given to me, and every mother's worst nightmare was now happening. All those years I had cried myself to sleep, wondering if God saw me, much less cared about me, flooded my heart along with the fear of losing my child. I held him until noon when he died in my arms. Then I carried him up the stair I carried him to the upstairs in the upper room, and I laid Joshua on the prophet's bed and I shut the door and I left. I knew the prophet would have answers. I knew that his prayers could touch God's ears. So I went without wasting a moment. I called my husband, get me a servant and a donkey so I can go to the holy man. I'll be back as soon as I can. He replied to me with bewilderment. But why today? This isn't a holy day. It's neither new moon or Sabbath. I told him, don't ask questions. I need to go right now. Trust me. I saddled my donkey and charged my servant to take the lead and go as fast as he could. And we raced to Elisha at Mount Carmel. As I neared the mount, Elisha's servant met me, asking if something was wrong. Not wanting to waste time explaining to him, I said, everything's fine. Because I needed to see Elisha face to face when I told him the news. When I reached Elisha, I jumped off my donkey and I grabbed a hold of him as if gripping him would make my son come back to life. No, I think I grabbed him because I was so angry. How dare he give me something I dared not dream of, only to have it ripped out of my hands. Only God had the answers and I had to know. I must have been making a scene because Gehazi tried to pull me away. But Elisha finally understood what was happening because he said, wait, leave her alone. Can't you see she's in distress? But God hasn't let me in on why. I'm completely in the dark. Then I spoke up. Did I ask for a son, master? Didn't I tell you don't tease me with these false hopes? What were you thinking? How could you do this? How could... 
I was so afraid to say it, but I did. How could God do this? Then he ordered Gehazi, don't lose a minute. Grab my staff and run as fast as you can. If you meet anyone, don't take the time to greet him. And if anyone greets you, don't even answer. Lay my staff across the boy's face. Well, I wasn't about to let Elisha leave my side. I knew that I had done all I could, but I felt if I just stayed in his presence, somehow God would do something. He would sustain me. He would comfort me. So I said, as sure as God lives and as sure as you live, you are not leaving me behind. Gehazi had arrived first and done what Elisha asked, but when he came back to meet us, I knew my son was still dead when he said, the boy hasn't stirred. This gut-wrenching moment did turn to hope, though. I knew no one else but God could answer. Not Gehazi, not my husband, not even Elisha. But I knew God listened to Elisha, and I knew God had promised me a son. My hope, my hope was in God's hands. All I could do is listen at the door to hear what was happening. And later they told me, first, Elisha prayed to God. He then got onto the bed with the boy and covered him completely with his body, mouth on mouth, eyes on eyes, hands on hands. And as he was stretched out over him like that, the boy's body became warm. Elisha got up and paced back and forth in the room. And then he went back and stretched himself upon the boy again. And the boy started sneezing. Seven times he sneezed, and then he opened his eyes. Elisha called Gehazi and said, Get the Shunammite woman in here. He called to me, and I came in. Elisha said, Embrace your son. I fell at Elisha's feet, face to the ground in reverent awe, and then I held my son. Joshua's growing up now. He's a teenager. I have no other children. And Elisha still stays in the upper room when he visits. As I look back to that moment when my son died, I can see God's hand at work. He was teaching me where to place my hope. Hope isn't in a child or a dream or in a comfortable life. Hope comes from surrendering complete control to God and saying, God, I'm yours. I'm in no matter what, and I'll trust you even though I'm in over my head. I'll trust you even if I'm in a barren desert. And just like that day when I was running to Elisha, I wasn't really running to him. Right on. So we have the Shunammite woman, and uh, we have her whole story. So what we're going to do is we're just going to take her story and we're going to break it down a little bit. I would encourage you to go back through this week and just look at 2 Kings chapter 4 and look at her story on how she trusted God with everything because that's really what I want us to look at doing today is how can we trust God with everything, with our best? And today we, we see that's what she did. And I think we can all can, can kind of relate because we all have a best. It could be your career. It could be your family. It could be a relationship. It could be school. It could be athletics. Whatever it is today, whatever you define as your best, we all have it. And today, when you trust God with your best, you experience more of God's presence. I, I, it's a promise today. When you trust God with your best, you'll experience more of his presence. And so today we're going to look at uh, verse 8. It says, One day Elisha went to the town of Shunem. A wealthy woman lived there, and she urged him to come to her home for a meal. After that, whenever he passed that way, he would stop there for something 
to eat. So we have, we have the Shunammite woman who invites Elisha in and says, hey, come live with me because I want to experience more of God's presence. And this is the thing you need to know. When you look at the scripture, it says she's a wealthy woman. Other translations in the Bible say that she's great. And it defines her wealth. It also defines her influence, her character. She's well known in her community. She might even be the mayor of the community or married to the mayor in her community. She's well known. They're well-to-do. They're businessmen. They're owners. Everybody knows them. But they also know her because she has a spiritual character. There's something different about her. The passage doesn't tell us a lot about when she became a believer or what that even looked like. But the cool thing was throughout the passage, we see that she demonstrated it. And after all, isn't it more important to demonstrate your faith than talk about your faith? So many times we want to talk about our faith or we want to post something on Facebook and say, oh, I'm a believer, I believe in Jesus. Great, who cares? If you've got nothing to back it up with, if you've got no faith, no action to back up your words that I'm a Christian, then what is it worth? It's not really worth anything. And today, she's known as a Christian, but she's not just known because she talks about it, but because she lives it. She lives it today. She lives it. So she comes in contact with Elisha, the the prophet, the, the man of God. And there's something distinct about Elisha. There's something that sets him apart. There's a confidence about him. Um, he speaks with wisdom. He speaks with power and it draws her. And so she urges him. She just doesn't say, Hey, can I invite you to come to my house for a meal? No, she begs. She's like, Hey, you've got something. You're, you're a man of God. I want you to come and live with me. Have you ever met somebody who's inspiring? No. Okay. You've ever met somebody who's inspiring? Every time you're around them, they just make you feel better about yourself or they, they cause you to, to live at a higher standard. Or you ever met somebody who has the call of God on their life and you're like, dude, I want what you got. I mean, I, don't, I know I can't be just like you, but whatever you got, I want some of that. And that's really what happens. She comes in contact with Elisha and she's like, dude, you got it going on. And I know if I want to experience more of God's presence, you got to come and hang out with me. you got to come be around. you got to come live. And that's really what happens. And how many husbands get to-do lists? Anybody? A to-do list? Anybody? Right? I love it. This, this scripture also tells us that women haven't changed over the years. She has a to-do list. She says, hey, honey, dude, let's invite this man of God over. And he's like, okay, that's fine. I'm sure he's thinking, what else is coming? Because something else comes in verse 10. She says, let's build a small room. Oh, praise the Lord. He's going, great. This is awesome. So men, just, hey, if you're, if you're dating people, you know, just know that if she has a to-do list, she might have another one. But that's okay. You love her for who she is. Amen? So here we go. She, she says, hey, honey, let's build a small room for him. And let's build it on the roof. Let's furnish it with a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp. Then he will have a place to stay whenever he comes by. Verse 11. And one day, Elisha returned to the, Shunam, to the Shunam, and he went up to this upper room to rest. So he returns to the town, and she, he comes and stays with her. Man, I just love the, 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 the details, even in the Word of God, where it talks about how they furnished the house. They furnished the room. They, they put a bed. They put the table. They put a lamp. They put chairs. They do all these things. And I don't know any of you, but I like to watch TV sometimes, especially Netflix or like do-it-yourself TV shows. Do-it-yourself TV shows are like huge right now, like, you know, Flip or Flop, all those shows where they're talking about when they take a piece of junk of a home and they turn it into something beautiful. You know what I'm saying? I like to watch those. And there used to be this one show that is not on any longer. It went off the air in 2008, but it's on Netflix and it's called Homes on Homes. And this big burly guy named Mike and, and his, his motto is, if you're going to do anything, do it right the first time. Because basically, the, the whole 
piece of the show is, is he comes in and he follows up after these contractors totally jacked everything up. He comes in and, 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 the, and the, the homeowners are like, dude, we just paid $20,000 for this sidewalk job and it's totally all jacked up. And he's like, oh, okay, well, let me help you fix it. And he does that. And so really, I, I want to challenge us to don't skimp out on God. Give God your best. That's what the Shunammite woman and family were doing. They were giving God their best. They said, hey, we're going to build you a room, not on the backside of the house with its own separate interests, so you can inconvenience us and, and, and you can come and bother us. No, they said, hey, we're going to build a, a room on the top of our house. It's going to change the shape of our house. Everybody in the neighborhood is going to know that we're doing something. We're, do, we're having an addition. Everybody's going to know that Elisha's living at our house. And so what do they do? They build the house on top. And so what they're saying, basically, the, the woman's saying, hey, I want to experience God's presence So Elisha, when you come, you come right through the front door. You come into the living room. You come through the kitchen. You come into the hallway. You're going to see my house when it's a mess, but you come right on in, and you come in and go on up to your room. She's not saying, hey, we're going to build you something off in the corner down in the basement where nobody's going to know. That doesn't cost me anything. No, I'm going to do something. I'm going to give you my best. So today I want to encourage you, don't skimp out on God. Give him your best because you'll miss out if you don't. Basically, she's saying, what's mine is yours. Here's a bed. Have you ever had anybody stay over the, at the, you know, stay the night at your house? Right? What happens? You usually stay up late. You conversate. You joke. You have a good time. But if you invite somebody over for, for dinner, and they're not going to stay the night, what do they do? They're like, oh, it's about 9 o'clock, or it's 7 o'clock, and we've only been here since 6.30. We're ready to go. The company stinks. I'm out of here. You know what I'm saying? But when you invite somebody to stay at your house, and you offer them a bed... You usually have late night conversations. You go deep with each other. That's what she's saying to Elisha. Hey, you can stay, spend time. There's a table and chair there. You're invited to come in fellowship and work here. I want you to share with me what God's doing in your life, Elisha. I want, to, I want you to share stories with me. And also, here's a lamp. Here's a lamp. I invite you to inspect my life. As you come in and you see my, see my life, it, it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to all be together. But I give you room to inspect and speak into my life. Have you ever had a guest over for the night? Or if you just invited a guest over for the night for dinner? You've done that, right? This is what happens, right? So what do we do? We invite, hey, Bill and Jamie, I'm going to invite you guys over for dinner. Okay, cool. What are we going to do? Hey, he's like, thumbs up, right on. And he's going to go, I'm going to go, Drew, what we need to do is here, we need to clean the living room, the kitchen, and the dining room. Take all of this other junk and just throw it in a spare bedroom. Take all this clutter and throw it into a closet. That's what we do, right? I'm only going to give Bill and Jamie limited access. I'm not going to be like, dude, come into my master bedroom. Look, we haven't done laundry or put any of our laundry away, but come on in. No, we, we, we typically don't do that. And there's a difference between just having somebody over for the night and then trying to sell your house. Have you ever tried to sell your house? What do you do? Every time you leave the house, you have make sure the house is spick and span, right? Because you don't know when you're going to get a call from Wendy, the realtor, and she's going to go, hey, we have somebody that wants to look at your house. Well, you're at work. No. You're, you're like, dude, my house is awry. It's not clean. Nothing. No. You keep your house just warm friendly, smelling good, looking good, because you want to get the best, the best bang for your buck. And you want the people to come in and go, man, this is awesome. This is aw- We want this house. And that's the difference. Are we allowing God just to come in and say, okay, Lord, you can hang out here, but there's no other place. Are we saying, God, here's my house. 
Come and inspect. Come and live. Come commune. Come and hang out. I think that's a great picture of what our relationship with the Lord should look like. We're saying, Lord, you have full access today. You have full access. So what does it look like for us today to build a room of prayer and devotion? What does that look like for you today? Where is that at? Is that a, place, is that a time and a moment where you, you don't actually build a physical room, but you just say, Lord, I'm just going to come and sit at the table in the morning before the kids get up and before my husband gets up, before everybody gets going, and I'm just going to spend time with you, Lord, and eat from the bread of life? Or is it in the middle of your busy work day, taking lunch and just sitting in your pickup truck and getting out your Bible and just reading it and loving on Jesus and letting Jesus just speak to you. I don't, I don't know, but it might also be a place, a spiritual place in your heart where you just say, Lord, I want you to come and live inside of my heart. I make a place for you to come and live, to commune. In that, there's gonna be a bed. I want you to stay. I don't want you to feel like you have to leave, God. God, there's a table there. There's a, there's a chair there. There's a lamp. Come and inspect my life. Show me areas where I'm falling short. What does that look like for us today to do that? Because when we do that, what we're really saying is, God, I trust you with my best. I trust you with me. I'm the best that I got, and I trust you with it. God, that you have a purpose and you have a plan for me, that you're gonna provide for me. We're trusting God with our best. We're saying, God, I trust you. God, I trust you. No longer am I the owner of myself going, hey, I have to control everything in my life, God. I trust you. And point number two is this. To trust God with your best, you have to realize you're only a manager of what God owns. You only get to manage what God, God owns. And so we're going to just go back through the story. You know, that time when Elisha, he's hanging out at the Shunammite woman's house, and he's with his servant. And he goes to his servant, and he goes, hey, man, this woman has been so generous to us. She's been so kind to us. We've got to do something. There's got to be something that she doesn't have that she needs. What can we do? So they go to her, and they say, hey, we know the king. Woo, yeah, we know the king. Okay, cool. She's like, whatever. Well, hey, we know the, we know the, the commander of the army. Okay, so? Well, do you need us to put in a good word for you? And she's like, no, I, I don't need anything. I, I, my, my husband takes good care of me. I have all that I need. I mean, have you ever tried to buy something for a relative or a friend that's pretty wealthy? It's very difficult because they can get anything they want. You probably can't even afford what they want. Or they already have everything. You know what I'm saying? This is what's happening. They're going, dude, the gal's got everything. So then they start thinking. And God reveals to them, hey, you know what, this woman? She says she's content. She says she has it all, but she doesn't have a son. And a son back in those days were everything. I mean, they take care of you when you're old. Now they just put you in nursing homes. (laughs) I mean, they take care of you, right? I mean, in that day, they, your inheritance, the lineage, the line of the family, they, they kept it going. They took care of the property. All of these things, it was a big deal. A big deal to have a son. And she's asked, well, what do you need? And she's like, I, I don't need anything. I, I'm content. I, I'm, everything's taken care of. And back in the day, when you didn't have a son, you were barren, it was looked on as a curse. People probably thought, man, what's wrong with her? She's done something against God. God does not love her. She's barren. But she's like, you know what? Time out. I'm cool. I'm loving God with my best. He's given me money. He's given me things. He's given me stuff. And I'm loving God with my best. I'm giving my best. I'm giving Elisha and his servant a place to live. I'm doing my best. I'm content with what I have. But 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 16 
and 17 says this, but about this time next year, Elisha said, you will hold a son in your arms. And her response is, no, my Lord, I object. Don't mislead your servant, O man of God. She's going, time out. Whoa, whoa, time out. I'm old and my husband is old as dirt. Like we, we can't have no kids. Things aren't working the way that they were supposed to when we were young and we didn't get blessed to have children. So we're, that ship is long and gone. We're cool. We don't need any children. We're fine. Even though deep down in her heart, that's what she longed for. I bet she probably prayed and said, Lord, why me? But guess what? She continued to remain faithful. She continued to remain steadfast and God blesses her. God blesses her. And so today, it's a, it's a great picture for us, I think, when we, when we look at this scripture. As I was reading yesterday, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, verse 6 says this. And this, I think, greatly describes this woman. She had godliness with contentment. When you have godliness and contentment, it equals great gain. It also, in another translation, says, when you have true godliness and contentment, itself is great wealth. So this woman, not only did she have money physically, but spiritually, she was wealthy. She had godliness. I don't know about you, but me, I I can sure love God a lot. I can be godly. I can do the right things. I can love my neighbor as myself. I can treat people how I want to be treated. I can do all those things. But I don't know about you, but there's moments in my life where I'm discontent with God. I get frustrated, and I'm like, come on, God, I'm loving you with the best that I have, but you got me here? What, you think here is okay? Do you ever ever have those conversations with God? Am I the only one? Okay, thank you for your honesty. I love it. But we have those moments where, hey, I, I can be godly, but I'm totally just ticked off right now. I'm not content with where he has me because I think I'm the owner of myself, and I know what's best. And there's other times where I don't have any godliness, and I have contentment. Really, it's just laziness. Apathy. I'm like, whatever, God, cool. I'm just gonna do what I want. I'm just gonna chill out. But when you combine godliness, godliness with contentment, man, nothing is impossible for God. When you combine godliness with contentment, I mean, it's a recipe for an explosion. It's like the finale of the fireworks on the 4th of July. You ever been there at the 4th of July when the finale comes and you're just like, wow. I want to encourage you, strive for godliness. Live godly and add contentment. It can only happen through Christ Jesus. You can only ask him and say, God, give me godliness. Help me to be godly and help me to be content with where you have me. And that's what we see. And we see she gets blessed with a child. Amazing. So today, my question is for you. Are you a manager? Are you an owner? Are you a manager of the things God's given you? Are you an owner? My wife and I recently, we just bought a house. They have a term for that, in debt. <sighs> Praise the Lord. But we have a house, but there's a real technical term. It's called homeowner. But do I really own the home? No. The bank owns the home. They footed the note. They said, hey, we'll let you manage this house and live there. But if you choose not to pay your mortgage, oh, watch out. Your title goes from not homeowner, but to homeless. So just get ready. I mean, right? And so we, we bought this house, but I'm not really the homeowner. I'm just the, I'm just the manager of it. I mean, I, I've been given the privilege to go. I can take down some walls. I can do some landscaping. I can change some things on the exterior and internal. I can do all those things, interior. And uh, I can do those things, but at the end of the day, I'm just the manager. If I don't pay for it, 
I can even come to the day where I pay for my house and it's done. I don't owe any more on the note. But if I die, somebody else takes over. I'm actually the fifth owner of my home. So today, do you find yourself going, hey, I'm a manager or I'm an owner? Where do you find yourself? Because today, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've given over your rights to own anything. God owns it all. When you, when you become to understand that God owns the vehicle that you drive, when somebody's in need and needs to get to, the, to Walmart or Hy-Vee, you go, oh, okay, God, well, you've blessed me with this vehicle. Let me take somebody and do that. You begin to act in a whole, totally, completely different way. When you understand that God owns your home and, and you open and you go, God, I just want you to fill this home with love and peace. And we just had a life group on, on Thursday night of college students. It was amazing. We literally get done at 930 and it's about 11 o'clock and college kids are still hanging out at our house. And I look at my wife and she goes, isn't this why we bought the house? And I was like, yeah, this is awesome. And I turned to the, I turned to the students while they're sitting at our table and I go, thank you so much for using our house, for using God's house. Thank you for feeling comfortable enough just to hang out at the table when, when people are leaving, that you feel comfortable enough just to stay and hang out. Man, it changes your perspective. It changes the way you live. It's awesome. So the woman has a kid. End of story, right? No. No, the kid later on in life gets sick, dies. And let's look at how the mother responds. Does she respond as the manager or the owner? If she was the owner, she's got money. She knows people. She probably could have called all the doctors and said, hey, come diagnose my kid. He's dead. Figure out what's wrong with him. But she doesn't. She, she doesn't. And what does she do? She, the kid's been freely given to her, to her by God. She takes the kid, picks the kid up, and walks it up into the room that she built for Elisha, the man of God, and lays him on the bed. What a perfect, what a picture of God. I'm just the manager. This is, my, this is a kid that I asked for, for for many years I didn't get. Now you've given me this kid? And he's broken. I need you to fix him. And so she lays him back on the bed, gives him back to God and says, God, do what you will. Today, we're going to stop right there in our story. We're going to hear a testimony from Annette Woodhead, who's a, who's a mom, a lady who attends our North Platte campus. And we're going to hear her story on how her life has been transformed as she's trusted God with her best. Let's watch this video. I grew up in an amazing home with um, two parents, three brothers, a brother that's 11 months older than I am, and two younger brothers. We had an, uh, an incredible, incredibly close family. My, we went to church every Sunday. We went to the Methodist church. We, my parents instilled great values into us, family values. But the one thing that was missing was relationship with Jesus Christ. We pretty much believed in good works, and we did them, and, um, but we didn't, we didn't know Jesus. The first time that I ever encountered or heard anything about the Lord was from my best friend in fifth grade. Her mother was dying of lung cancer, and she was in the hospital many times, and we would go visit her, and she would want us to read the word to her. And she would share her faith with us, and we would laugh and kind of snicker. And um, we 
we did read the word to her, but we really didn't pay a lot of attention at that time. However, when I did end up um, running to the Lord to, um, for relationship was when she died. Um, that was when I was about in sixth grade. And Jody and I, way back then, 40-some years ago, the, the church was opened 24-7, and we went, I think it was in the evening, Jody and I went down to the altar and basically just fell before the Lord as sixth graders and gave our hearts to the Lord. And both of us at that time, the Lord pretty much um, gave us a, an, an immense passion for him that has kept both of us in our lives these last 45 years. Um, there is about two pivotal times in my life that I remember, but I guess before I talk about that, um, when I was in sixth grade, um, after I came to Christ, the Lord was gracious to provide for me teaching, solid teaching, as far as um, devotional time, spending time with Him, praying in many, many women in my life. Um, the first one was a college student that met with Jody and I, and then the next one was a pastor's wife. We moved, our family moved to North Platte when I was in high school, and she met with me weekly, and clear up until I got married. And um, when, I, when I was in college, there was also another woman there. When I was newly married, another woman, when we moved to Alliance and then back to North Platte, each place, God provided godly women in my life to grow me up in the Lord. Um, One of the first times I remember when I was in college, I was doing my devotions and um, the Lord really spoke to my heart. And it was one of the major life changing besides becoming a Christian was I was engaged to Woody to be married in the summer and I was doing my devotions and I, I was deeply in love with my family, my parents and my brothers. And my older brother had, he was in college as well and had received the Lord um, previously, maybe a year before and was growing. But my two younger brothers and my parents were not as of yet still going to church, but not, did not know the Lord personally, I believe. And so I had this fear of leaving the home that if I left, that they wouldn't come to Christ. And the Lord showed me in one of my quiet times with him, um, he really showed me that I had been making my joy and my, um, actually, peace um, in my heart. I had put them at the center. And um, what I mean by that is that whether they were saved or not was what made me joyful. And um, he wanted to be the core of my heart and he wanted my family to be on the outside. And I am so thankful for that. It, it, it took some of my family members 40 years to come to Christ. They, they all now know him, but it would have been a long road if the Lord would have not been merciful in showing me that and um, gracious to me in that. Um, the second pivotal time of my life, as far as um, making the Lord 100% um, mine and um, learning to constantly in everything run to him would be when I was um, had four children, four small children. Woody and I lived in North Platte and he was going to be getting his, mas- getting his master's degree in Shadron. And so that part of his degree, he had to live from May until August in Shadron and the kids and I lived in North Platte. That summer, my folks lived in North Platte and I had a really close friend, several close friends, but one that 
um, encouraged me that they would help me that summer um, when Woody was gone. And what happened was um, my parents abruptly moved from North Platte to um, Omaha that summer that Woody was going to be gone. And then my friend and her husband, he was a pastor, were called to Russia for the summer with their children. And so they left in April and my parents left as well before Woody went to Shadron. So that summer was the summer that the Lord became my husband, my daddy, and my best friend all in one. And what he did for me that summer was showed me that he wanted to completely fill up my heart, fill up my cup 100% to where it was completely full and that every relationship that I had um, besides him would only be an overflow of what, what was already filled. So that prepared me for the next 20 years when um, we, we walked some tough times and um, I didn't steer away from what I knew to be true uh, I believe because God constantly pursued me and I persistently ran to him with everything and found that he was enough for every situation. Um, the older, I tell my kids all the time that the older I get, um, the longer I'm in the Lord, I've known him now for 45 years, that the more I know him, the more I need him, the more I know him, the less I know. So, um, I constantly still run to him and have him fill up my cup. My name is Annette, and I am second. Right on. So what do we do today? How do we respond today? Now that we kind of understand what it looks like to be a manager. When you manage what God owns, the best way that I've seen in the best way to practice this is just to Live with your hands open. Don't hold on to things so loosely where it all, the ebb and flow falls on me. Not everything is controlled by me. I can't control it all. And that's the best way to to run to the father. And that's what we see the mother do. She runs then. She calls to her husband. She says, hey, I've left the kid on the bed. Hey, get me a servant. Get me a donkey and let me have a lead guy. And we're going to race up to Elisha, the man of God. And she runs. She doesn't cling to her son and go, oh, why, God, why? Even though she might have felt that, she knew what to do. As a manager, she goes, hey, it's the owner's. I got to go find the owner. And she runs to the owner. So let's take a look. She gets to the top of the mountain. And when she comes to the man of God at the mountain, she she fell to the ground before him and caught a hold of his feet. Powerful. She runs to the man of God. She runs to the presence. She runs to really the picture is Jesus today. When life's falling apart, when you're trying to manage things on your own and they're falling apart, who are you running to? Today, I want to encourage you to be like the Shunammite woman and take hold of Jesus' feet. You can't control everything. You're not really called to control anything. Just trust God with your best. Be faithful, be godly, and be content, and let him take care of the rest. So today, as we worship today, as we go into worship, will you run and take a hold of the feet of Jesus? Will you let him show you areas that maybe you're falling short or where you're trying to hold on to things and he's going, hey, stop trying to control your spouse. I can do that. Just offer him over to me. Stop trying to strangle his neck or her neck. Just give him to me. 
Quit trying to hold on to your finances. Just trust me with them. Don't try to control your kids. I can do that. I can change the heart. I know you need the job. Will you trust me? Whatever it is today, will you take a hold of the feet of Jesus and let him speak to you and lead you and guide you today? Let's pray. God, today we love you and we thank you for who you are, that you're faithful. We thank you for this story of the Shunammite woman who, God, she finds herself being faithful and being content. Saying, God, I'm here. I'm yours. I believe. I trust. I live by faith, not by sight. God, you own it all. You've given it to me just to manage. And I trust you with it. I trust you with my best. So today, God, we come. Some of us with heavy hearts. Some of us just going, God, I just need you to be the Lord. I need you to be the leader. God, I want you to to lead my best. Every good and perfect gift is from you, God. Would you lead my best today? Lord, we love you. We thank you for who you are. Thank you for your faithfulness that you know what's best for us. So we trust you with it. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen.